Well, remain standing and reach down, pick up your copy of God's Word and open it this morning to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we will read just a few verses this morning, verses 32, 33, and 34, just those three verses this morning. Follow along as I read. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for uh, every word that you have given to us. We know that every word is inspired, Father. Every word breathed out by you recorded by men, moved along by the Holy Spirit so that what they wrote is your word. And we are the the beneficiaries of that this morning as we hear your word. And we pray that as we have heard it read and as we now hear it proclaimed in our hearing, we pray that you would bless us through it. We pray that you would encourage us through it. We pray that you would open eyes that you would soften hearts, Lord, through this time. We pray it all in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. And you may be seated. We often hear when a breaking news story comes across the wires, a familiar phrase, more details as they become available. And in this morning's passage, Mark has recorded for us uh, more details as they have become available to the disciples. We have Mark recording for us Jesus giving these additional details to his disciples regarding what they are in a very short time to witness and which Jesus himself is going to experience. As they continue to make their way to Jerusalem, Jesus explains to them what is going to happen when they get there. Now, for the disciples, all of this that that we're seeing, this is all unfolding before them one step at a time, one encounter after the other, one teaching from Christ at a time, one miracle performed by him at a time, one day at a time. Imagine what it's like to have traveled with Jesus. Always something amazing happening, always something new, uh, exciting, uh, confusing, we've seen, uh, to them as, as they followed Jesus, who had bid them all to leave their previous lives and to follow him. Now, for Jesus, though, of course, this is him simply following the will of his Father who had sent him. 
And Jesus knows exactly where that is going to lead him. He has made very clear that his purpose was to come and to do what his Father had given him to do. In John 6, 38, he said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And in chapter 4 of that same book, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus, we ought always to remember and never forget, he came to this earth, he took on a true and complete, though not sinful, human nature for a singular purpose, to redeem mankind through, through doing, perfectly doing, all of the requirements of God's law. We've already talked about that in the service this morning. And then by offering himself up as a complete, acceptable, one-time sacrifice for sin. Not his own sin. He didn't have any. But for the sin of mankind, as many who, as will call upon his name. Jesus was the definition of a man on a mission. And Jesus was determined that nothing would deter him from fulfilling the work that the Father had given him to do. And nothing did. And Luke tells us, in fact, that when the days began to draw near for for these events to be set into motion, the events that we're going to look at, that Jesus, Luke said in Luke 9, 51, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He focused himself on that task. As we read in the uh, the servant songs, we read in one of them this morning, in Isaiah 50, verse 7, the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, said, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. And what made this looming shadow of the cross of Golgotha all the more daunting is that Jesus did know everything that was going to happen to him once he rode that donkey into Jerusalem. And still, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And when it all comes before him, when all of this uh, begins to happen, even then he will say, not my will, Father, but your will be done. And Mark, as Jesus has, has set his face and has begun this journey toward Jerusalem, Mark has been kind of building the tension up in, in his own record of this journey, this final journey of Jesus to Jerusalem. He said that they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And then, he says, they went to Capernaum. And he left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And he was setting out on his journey, all of these these markers of Jesus progressing along. And now in verse 32, that goal is almost in sight. And Mark writes, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Again, progressing the story, they were on the road. And now they are close enough for Mark to include going up to Jerusalem. Going up, of course, physically. 
We've talked about that in the past, how Jerusalem was up on a hill, and so as you went to Jerusalem, especially from the, the east, you are going uphill to get to the gates of Jerusalem. But also, I think, they are going up to Jerusalem thematically uh, toward the crescendo of Jesus' ministry. And we're getting there. If you look down at the beginning of of the next chapter, chapter 11, you'll see that we will be at the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And as we come to that, we know that by that next Friday afternoon that Jesus will be dying on a cross, dying for you, Christian. But Mark then, and only Mark, adds this. He says, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. An interesting tidbit that that Mark adds. And remember, we haven't mentioned this for a while, that Mark's main source of information as he put together this gospel was the apostle Peter. And so Peter is right there with Jesus, and and Peter would have have taught and perhaps mentioned to Mark that at this time, as they were going on the final leg of this journey to Jerusalem, that Jesus was on ahead of us. And Mark writes that Jesus was walking ahead of them. You know, Jesus, who knows everything that's going to happen, what waits him, awaits him in Jerusalem, one would think that he might be on the other side of the group, that he might be hanging back, not at all anxious to get there. You know, condemned men on the way to their execution are not typically... You know, like, come on, we have a schedule to keep here. Uh, They don't lead the guards down the hallway to the execution chamber. But here Jesus is leading the way. And while we can't take and don't want to take anything away from the horror of what he faced, which is becoming more and more real to Jesus as he approaches Jerusalem and will continue to be so until that night that he's in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples at the night of his arrest. He says, my soul is deeply grieved unto death. But here, it's as if, and I think this is the case, that Jesus also sees, and I'm sure is in the forefront of his mind, the purpose for which he is going the result of what he is going to do. He would see in his mind millions set free from sin and shame and punishment. He would see you, Christian, set free from your sin, set free from shame, set free from your punishment. He sees the kingdom being populated by sinners whom he redeems through his sacrifice. And so as he set his face even to go to Jerusalem, and as he has always been, he is now laser-focused on the goal, on the result. And so he leads the way, walking ahead of them. An action that's not lost on those who are with him. In regard to the disciples, Mark says, And they were amazed. That's a familiar word lately as we've gone through this section of Mark. There's been a lot of that going on, a lot of amazement. Even just last week, um, they were first amazed at Jesus' words, Mark said, 
And then they were exceedingly astonished at the next words that he, that he said. And now they are amazed that Jesus is leading the pack down the road. Amazed at Jesus. Amazed at his commitment to the goal, commitment to the work. Jesus has already, remember, told them where they are going. He's already mentioned to them why they are going there. They're not going to Jerusalem just to attend the Feast of Passover, but they're going for Jesus to suffer and die. But instead of being at the back of the pack, Jesus is leading him, and that amazed the disciples. Now Mark tells us that there was another group with him described here as those who follow. Now remember that there were disciples of Jesus who are in addition to the 12 who are also called apostles. Jesus had this group, a large group that followed him. There were 12 that were his apostles, the ones that we know. Uh, Then there was a larger group who were always kind of in the background, but always there. We've said that all the apostles were disciples, but not all of the disciples were apostles. And those who followed is a reference here to the the larger group. Not the twelve, but the rest who were following Jesus. And it could have been a large number. And these other followers that are always kind of in the background, often mentioned, often around a mixed crowd, with a range of motivations as we've looked at, as we've gone through the book of Mark, Uh, a range of motivations for following Christ, some good, some not good. It's just like today. But they, Mark says, those who followed, were afraid. What do you think they were afraid of? Well, they have been following Jesus Word has probably gotten around of where they're going, the sense of urgency uh, from Jesus and a sense of foreboding, perhaps, from the apostles has affected those in the back of the crowd. They are, after all, traveling with Jesus, who has predicted some pretty terrible things are going to take place. Uh, to come about in Jerusalem, and yet here they are with him on the road to Jerusalem, with him, not just in his company, but joined to him as followers of his, which is what a disciple is. What might their association with Jesus bring on them when they arrive in the capital of the nation, the home of the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests, those who have been so angered at Jesus and now are seeking Jesus' death, what might that mean to them when they come to this city, the home of these religious leaders, and at the busiest time of the year, the Feast of Passover? I think that points us to why those who followed were afraid. And again, there are many like that today. Many that follow Jesus, but not as closely as others, and out of a fear of what a close association with him might mean. Because it might mean rejection. It might mean difficulties. It might even mean danger. 
not so much here in the United States, but in other parts of the world, following Jesus does introduce uh, a large component and possibility of danger. But they were afraid. And as they're on the way here, Jesus in the lead, the amazed disciples or the amazed apostles behind him and the afraid disciples behind them, Jesus knows that it is time for him once again to speak. One final time about the events to come. And this is not just repetition, but as we'll see, this is, this is the third time that Jesus will have said this. The third prediction, the third prophecy regarding, as Mark says here, what was to happen to him. And as he speaks to them, he gives new information. More details have become available that he is about to give to them. But this revelation that he has given to them, or that he has for them, is not for everyone. And so at the end of verse 32, we read that he takes the twelve. He takes those that are uh, his apostles. And it says that he began to tell them what was to happen to him. And again, notice, if you have your Bibles open, which I hope you do, I can't see over the pews to see who does or who doesn't. One of the ways that you get the most benefit from a sermon is to have your Bible open and following along, reading along, making notes, if that helps you. Parents, again, teaching your children by example that, at least in this church, preaching is inextricably tied to the text of Scripture. Preaching is not my word. It's God's word. Keeping tabs on what I am saying. And while I, while I hope that you trust me as your pastor to deal properly and responsibly with God's word, to handle accurately the word of truth, I also hope that you are all good Bereans, like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, that both received the word that Paul was preaching with them uh, with great eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. For all of those reasons, have your Bibles open after we read it. And if you have your Bibles open to Mark 10, at the end of verse 32, you'll see that Mark writes that Jesus took the twelve aside again. We've already mentioned that this isn't the first time Jesus has told the disciples about the events that will take place in Jerusalem. In fact, this isn't the second time that he's done it. It's the third time. It's also the last. This is the last time that Jesus will explain these events that will be upon them soon. In fact, I want to, to read those other two as we get ready to look at this third telling. Uh, we'll stay in Mark, although all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them record all three of these tellings uh, by Jesus of what is to take place, but we're going to stay in Mark here. But each one, as we'll see, brings in new information, brings in additional details. The first one is in Mark chapter 8. As Mark presents his material, they're, they're very close together. There's one in chapter 8, one in chapter 9, and one in chapter 10. The first one's in Mark 8.31. And turn over there follow along with this. It comes about just after Jesus takes his disciples, remember, up to the town of Caesarea Philippi, 
which is, and he does this just before the transfiguration that we've looked at. And you'll remember as he's there in Caesarea Philippi that Jesus asked the twelve as he's got them together, who do people say that I am? And then, of course, he asked the more important question, but who do you say that I am? To which Peter, remember, responds, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then with, with that confession still hanging in the air, uh, with that understanding that Peter has just expressed, though we have learned that it becomes apparent that they still don't really grasp all that that title means. But Jesus then tells, tells us, Mark records in verse 31, that Jesus began to teach them. And then we get, in this sort of third-person statement, Mark reporting what Jesus said to Peter, the first of these three statements. In Mark 8.31, he says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, Mark says. Now, you read what we have read this morning, you read this, and you might think, well, it's kind of the same thing. And to a degree it is. But at this point, remember, in chapter 8 here, as Jesus gives this to them, all of this is new. But the main points of Jesus' statement are these. First, in this prediction, Jesus states to them the necessity of these things. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things. And as we learned when we were looking at that passage, these things had to happen because they were part of what Paul will later call the predetermined plan of God. This was part of the plan of redemption these things that Jesus said was going to happen. The second important thing is that Jesus said here that he was going to be rejected, scorned, cast out uh, by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, he says there. It's the religious leaders specifically represented by these three groups uh, together in what we typically refer to as the Sanhedrin. It is they who will reject Jesus the Messiah. John wrote in the opening verses of his gospel that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And that's what Jesus uh, prophesies here. The third thing here about this first statement is, of course, the shocking to the disciples, inconceivable idea that the Messiah would suffer many things and be killed. So shocking was this idea to the ears of the disciples that Peter immediately decides that he needs to talk some sense into Jesus and to instruct him on these things. And remember, he takes the Lord aside and rebukes him. and says, Lord, these things shall not be Lastly, in this first statement here, Jesus says that after three days that he would rise again. And beloved, that, that glorious epilogue is, is appended to all three of the statements that Jesus makes. He will suffer, he will be killed, but he will not stay in the grave. He will not stay dead. It's not possible. 
And it's not just that Jesus must suffer and be rejected and be killed, but that he must rise from the dead on the third day. That too, that gloriously true, is an unchangeable part of God's plan. So that's the first statement that Jesus gives. The second one, as I said, is in chapter 9, and it is in verses 30 and 31. So turn over there. So this is just after the transfiguration. And Jesus and Peter and James and John come down the hill where Jesus was transfigured before them. And they come upon a kerfuffle that is going on between the other disciples and the Pharisees. And Jesus learns as he enters into the conversation that a man had brought his demon-possessed son uh, to the disciples for them to heal but that they weren't able to do so. They couldn't do it. And in the story, and we, we went through it, Jesus heals him, and the group then goes back to the area of Galilee, passing quietly through it, Mark said, because, quote, he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. He pulls them aside again and privately says to them this. It's again, this information is meant for the 12. And then here in chapter 9 in verse 31, we get the substance of that teaching that he's giving. And we find that it's primarily this second statement to them of the coming troubles for Jesus in Jerusalem. And here's the statement in verse 31. He was teaching his disciples, saying, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Now, we might think that that, too, is just a restatement from what he said in chapter 8, but, but it's not. There are two important additions that Jesus adds here. The first is that whereas the first statement mentioned the necessity of what was going to happen, this must take place. Here Jesus speaks about the resulting inevitability of these things. He says the Son of Man is going to be. He is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. This is not just one of several possibilities that might happen when they eventually get to Jerusalem, but this is what is going to happen. And what is going to happen to Jesus, to the Son of Man? Well, in the first statement, remember, he said that he's going to be rejected by the Jews, by their religious leaders. Here he, he reveals that something more is behind that, that he is going to be, what, delivered into the hands of men. The Creator is going to be turned over to his creation so that they can kill him. If you were with us when we looked at that passage, you, you hopefully will remember the, the fascinating things that we learned when we looked at just what is behind this idea of Jesus saying he would be delivered into the hands of men. If you weren't with us, I encourage you to jump online and, and watch or listen to the sermon of that passage. It's amazing things. But Jesus emphasizes here that he does not just end up in the hands of men, but that he is delivered over into their hands. And as before, we see here at the end, they will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. Again, that note of hope, that note of, of glory. 
that note of joyousness. Well, that brings us to Mark 10 and to our passage this morning and to the third and final statement of Jesus to the disciples regarding what lies ahead for Jesus. And Jesus took the twelve aside. We read here. And he began to tell them what was to happen to him. By the way, not many people can do that. Not many people can do that with assurance. In fact, there's only one, and he's the one doing it here. Luke, Luke makes this even more weighty as we come to this, because he writes it this way, a little more detail. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So that's what's going to happen. Everything that has been prophesied about the Messiah that was going to happen. Some of those that we read this morning in the servant song. Some of those in Isaiah 53, another one of the servant songs. Those things that are going to happen. They are the things that have long been prophesied about the Messiah. Those are the things, Jesus says, that's going to happen. And here, for the first time, the first in Mark's record, Jesus says specifically that these things are going to happen in Jerusalem. On this trip, we are going up to Jerusalem upon which these things are going to happen. All of this will take place. This is it, Jesus is saying to them. This is the time. You know, prepare yourself for these things. The Bible says that the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. That's what they're coming to. And this final statement is the most detailed of them all and really begins to describe what's going to happen to Jesus within the last 24 hours of his life. He refers to himself here in verse 33 as he has in all of these prophecies of his suffering and death as the Son of Man. Of course, that was Jesus' most favored um, way to refer to himself. It recurs 14 times in Mark's gospel. And Jesus uses that term in, in reference to himself to emphasize certain aspects of his, of his person and of his work. He uses it to speak of his authority, for example, in chapter 2, verse 10, and verse 28 of that same chapter. He does it to emphasize his suffering and his uh, resurrection, in, specifically in these three sayings that we've been looking at. And he will, in chapter 13, use uh, the term as a reference to his future coming in glory. And, of course, most importantly, as we think on that term, Son of Man, it identifies Jesus with that glorious Old Testament figure in Daniel chapter 7, who is presented to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and who receives from God the Father an everlasting and an absolute dominion over all the nations. That is the Son of Man. And that is always in the background of Jesus when he refers to himself that way. And the Son of Man, here now in his time of humiliation, Jesus says, will be, and here's this, this phrase from earlier, he will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. You see it there. Jesus doesn't include the, the elders here who are sort of, were sort of the lay nobility in this time. Uh, not elders in the sense that we speak of elders in the church. Uh, 
But he focuses here on the chief priests and the scribes, on the the purely religious element within the Sanhedrin. The, The chief priests, the scribes, those experts in the Scripture. It is to them, Jesus says, that the Son of Man is going to be delivered. That's what, this is what happens in the, the, the Garden of Gethsemane when the betrayer, Judas, comes with a, a, a huge number of soldiers and they come and they arrest Jesus and they take him to these, this group. And then we can follow the events here that we're going to study in more detail, of course, when we come to chapter 14 of Mark. But Jesus says that he will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. He says, and they will condemn him to death. That's a new detail, a detail that Jesus will be condemned. So he's not just rejected, he's condemned. Rejected, not just rejected, not just delivered, but condemned. That's part of a specific, deliberative procedure within the Sanhedrin, within the the, the leadership of the Jewish people. Jesus will be and you know this story, he will be hauled before the, both the recognized chief priest and the official chief priest. He will be falsely charged. He will be falsely accused of blasphemy and pronounced by the Jewish religious court as worthy of death. John 19.7, they say he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. Then, Having done that, Jesus continues, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. So chapter 8 says he'll be rejected by the Jewish authorities and be killed. Chapter 9, he says that he will be delivered into the hands of men and be killed. And now here in chapter 10, we learn more of that process. The Jews, remember, being under the authority of the Roman Empire... They were, to a a large degree, left to themselves. They were free to exercise their religion. They were free to exercise uh, their social um, norms. And even in their their jurisprudence, they, they could exercise religious and even corporal punishments unless the person so accused happened to also be a Roman citizen. Then they couldn't give corporate punishment to them. Think of Paul. When they found when Paul mentioned that he was a Roman citizen to the Romans who had just beat him, they were pretty worried about it. But the Jews could not put someone to death. They were not able to do that. They didn't have that permission. Only the Roman government was able to exercise capital punishment, which meant that the Jews needed to and did as verse 33 says, deliver him over to the Gentiles, deliver him over to the Romans, which they did when they delivered Jesus over to the governor of Judea at that time, a man named Pontius Pilate. And this is another step in the voluntary humiliation of the Christ, not just to be arrested, not just to suffer or even to die, but to do so having been delivered to the Gentiles outside of the covenant people of God, at the hands of the nations, at the hands of the dogs, as they referred to them. The defiled, the unclean, outside the camp, as it were. In fact, which literally came to pass when Jesus was executed outside of the camp, outside of the city of Jerusalem. 
Not only a cursed death on the cross, which Paul mentions in Galatians, but for a Jew to be humiliated by the Gentiles was a particularly shameful thing and which will take place, which will happen to Jesus. But Pilate, once they turn him over to Pilate, uh, once the, the Jews have handed him over to him in order to formalize the sentence and to carry out the sentence of death that was sought by the Jewish re- leaders, uh, not once, not twice, but three times the civil authorities proclaim that they find nothing worthy of death in Jesus. Pilate reports twice that he finds nothing wrong with Jesus. He is innocent, and he reports that Herod Antipas, who also Jesus goes before, that he also found him innocent. And, of course, we could throw in there Pilate's wife, who said to her husband that because of a dream that he should have nothing to do with that innocent man. But in the end, though, we know that Pilate will not stand up to the Jewish mob and that ultimately he delivers Jesus over to be crucified. And as a result of that process, we see here Jesus foretelling the things that would take place as part of the fulfillment of that in verse 34. He says, and they will mock him. They did that. And they will spit on him. They did that twice. The Jews did it, and the Romans did it. And they will flog him. And they did that. That was also prophesied in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, which we read this morning. And then, yes, they killed him. All three of the prophecies, again, explicitly mention that, that Jesus is going to suffer and to die in Jerusalem. Not just die, but as it says here, he will be killed. He will be killed by the Romans because of the Jews. By the Romans for the Jews. And all of this will happen, Jesus has said, because it must happen. Because that is the plan of God to effect the redemption of mankind. And Jesus wanted his disciples here at this point to know what was coming. But he also wanted to remind them, we cannot leave this out, as he had in the previous two prophecies of his suffering and death, that this death was not the end. It is not the defeat of the Son of Man. In fact, it is his greatest victory. Paul, in the book of Colossians, states that in his death that the spiritual enemies of God and of Christ, and of us, by the way, were disarmed. That they were put to an open shame as Christ, he says, triumphed over them on the cross. What looked to the world like Jesus' greatest defeat was his greatest victory. And this triumph is just as surely as his death, the thing that comes next, a part, a glorious part of that redemptive plan of God. And that triumph is to be demonstrated and confirmed in the fact, as we see here, that after three days he will rise. Gloriously from the dead, defeating death. And so Jesus reminds his disciples again of what they are getting ready 
to face what Jesus is getting ready to face and experience. And for us this morning, as we consider these things, let us be, well, let us be like the disciples and let us be amazed. As we look at these things from, from where we are on the other side of their fulfillment, let us be amazed, beloved, at the love of God for us. At God's desire that we should be reconciled to him and the lengths to which he went, the lengths which Christ went in order to secure that. Let us be amazed at that. Let us be amazed at the love of Christ for us who would willingly come and knowingly submit to all of this being rejected, being condemned by his own people, being turned over to the Gentiles in order to provide salvation for Jew and Gentile alike. Let us be amazed at the wisdom of God who used the gross and heartless abuse of his dearly beloved innocent son in order that we might be adopted into his family. And finally, let us be amazed at the call that Christ makes to us to come and to follow him and be called children of the Most High. And as we are amazed at these things, let us say, Amen. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for for what he has done. We have descriptions. We have the three prophecies, Lord, and then we have the the descriptions of what happened, Lord, and still we cannot approach a full understanding of what he has done. But we know that he suffered these things. He suffered the wrath of men, and more importantly, he suffered your wrath, O God, against sin, in order that we who trust in him would not have to, would not have to suffer your wrath, would not have to endure your punishment for our sins, though we and ourselves deserve it. We thank you that Christ has borne that in his own body on the tree. We pray that we would always be amazed at such a great salvation that we have received so freely. May it be to us the greatest joy in our life. We pray this in his name. Amen.